Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. Today, I just want to dive in, and I want to look at probably a lesson that I think every single one of us needs to be reminded of. We've called it the biggest lesson because I think this lesson is an important one. That when we get this one right, it helps recalibrate the rest of our lives. When we get this one right, it helps make sense of everything else. But when we miss this lesson, it leads to a lot of frustration. It leads to a lot of disappointment. When we miss this lesson, it really creates friction in our life. And here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. The world does not revolve around you. Half of the room snickering, and half of the room is like the oxygen just left the place, right? This is one of those lessons that, honestly, nobody goes home tweeting about. They're like, that was so encouraging. The world doesn't revolve around me. And then some of you are like, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. Isn't that so? Because, honestly, it's easy to see a little bit of diva in somebody else, and it's harder to see that in ourselves. Isn't that so? Where, where honestly, we think the world revolves around us. We think the world revolves around our schedules and our personalities and all of our commitments and our jobs and the important things that we have to do. And sometimes we need, and when I say we, I'm talking about me, sometimes we need this reminder that the world doesn't revolve around us. And we live in a generation that makes us think that it does revolve around us. We live in what I I call the selfie generation. I talked about it a while back where when Laura and I were on a vacation not long ago, everywhere we went, we saw people with selfie sticks. Have you seen this? Now, I'm not going to ask you if you have a selfie stick. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not really knocking selfie sticks. I'm just pointing out the fact that like four years ago, the term selfie didn't even exist. Think about that. Like four years ago, nobody went around saying, hey, I want to take a picture of myself. And so in some ways, marketing, in some ways, social media has told us the world revolves around us. How many of us have seen a selfie this week? How many of us have taken a selfie this week? I mean, we all do it. I mean, we see it everywhere. Have you seen the I'm stuck in traffic selfie? Have you seen that one lately? Somebody that's on 985, they're like, traffic's not moving. Here's a selfie of me frustrated. What about the here's the dessert I'm about to eat selfie? Have you all seen that one? Yeah? (laughs) I made fun of it at first service, and somebody reminded me, Bobby, you do that often. (laughs) God bless your ministry. Let me pray for you. I like to point out my halo top ice cream, right? What about the, hey, I've got a cute outfit on today, selfie. Have you seen that one? Or somebody has it just put together. They're like, hey, I'm going to take a selfie. And sometimes, ladies, you take the, hey, I've got cute dimple selfies. I see it a lot in our teens that go here. They turn their head just right, and they show off their, their dimples. Have you all seen the uh, I'm super spiritual selfie? Have you all seen that one? Where somebody's got their Bible open up to the highlighted page, and they got a little cup of coffee, and they got a little encouraging verse, and they're like, hey, look at me. I'm having my quiet time today selfie. And what's funny is sometimes when people take selfies, they don't pay attention to what's going on in the background. Have you seen that where somebody's got a nice little selfie put together and then there's like chaos going on in the background? Kids are just running amok, right? How about the, have you seen the I'm preaching at Sugar Hill Church selfie? Have y'all seen that one? Oh, you haven't seen that one? I did that at youth camp this summer and somebody's like, hey, I'm not in the picture. I'm like, uh, that's the point, right? 
Sometimes we need a reminder in social media world that the world does not revolve around us. And here's the second part of this lesson. There is a God and we're not him. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world doesn't revolve around our preferences. The world doesn't revolve around our routines. The world doesn't revolve around our schedules. There is a God and we're not him. And sometimes we need to be reminded that sometimes I need to be reminded. Oftentimes it's those little moments. Oftentimes it's the areas of frustration. Oftentimes it's when something doesn't go as planned that I get reminded of the lesson. Even this morning, I'm getting ready, locked and loaded, ready for this message. The world doesn't revolve around us. And then I'm in the closet having a meltdown because I can't find clean socks. Have y'all been there? Or sometimes I end up at Subway and, and I end up behind the person that acts like they've never been in a Subway in their entire life. And they're like, oh, I get to choose breads. I get to choose cheese. I get to, right? And, and sometimes it's those inconveniences. It's those things that get under our skin. It's that person that doesn't go immediately when the light turns green. You're like, come on, we just lost 0.8 milliseconds. Would you just go? And then you end up at the next light right next to them again, and right? And sometimes it's those moments. Sometimes it's those inconveniences. Sometimes it's just getting sick when we're reminded that the world doesn't revolve around us. There is a God, and we're not him. And there's a lot of examples of this in Scripture, of people learning this lesson. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to find Daniel chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, but you've got a device with the Bible app on it, or if you want to go to BibleGateway.com, I want to invite you to follow along in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, there's a king that's in charge. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. As a kid, I always heard my pastor say King Nebi. So if I accidentally slip and say Nebi, that's what I'm talking about. So Nebuchadnezzar was an incredible king. He was the king of Babylon. And chances are you've heard of Babylon. Babylon the Great. You've heard some stories of Babylon. Uh, two of the seven wonders of the world were in Babylon. Giant tower, hang, hanging gardens, an unbelievable empire. Well, what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar is the king in the portion that we read. King Nebuchadnezzar has gone into Israel. He's taken Israel hostage. He's taken people like Daniel uh, captive. And so now they're hundreds of miles away in Babylon. And Babylon was impressive. I mean, literally, Babylon was impressive. It was this unbelievable city. It had walls around the city. I'm not just talking about little walls. I'm not just talking about a privacy fence. They had walls that were, get this, 300 feet tall. They were at the base, 350 feet deep. At the top, they're like 82 feet wide. They literally could have chariot races around the rim of that wall. And that city had in it the giant Tower of Babel that we read about in Scripture. And they had the hanging gardens. They had this banquet room that was over one mile long where they could literally invite over 30,000 people to a banquet. I mean, Babylon was impressive. Babylon was known in the world as being this impressive, impressive, impressive kingdom. And so the king, as we read about in Daniel chapter 2, is King Nebuchadnezzar. So he's got all of these people around him that are saying, King, you're the man. He's got all of this good stuff around him. And yet in the middle of Daniel chapter two, he has to wake up to this one lesson. And here's the lesson, Nebuchadnezzar, the world doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around Babylon. It doesn't revolve around your kingdom. There is a God. And guess what, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not him. And I think this morning, that's the lesson I need to be reminded of. That no matter how good the stuff is in our life, no matter how much promotion we've been through, no matter what, what earthly things that we have, and we could go around the room and we could be impressed by all of our stuff, but at the end of the day, we have to remember there is a God and we're not him.
And so this morning, I want to give us just three sort of takeaways, three reminders that God is in charge, that God is the one on the throne, that God's the, the person that the world revolves around in at least three ways. The, the first way, number one, that we learned that God is in charge, number one, is because of his character. Because of his character. If you've got one of the handouts and you want to jot down some notes, I invite you to do it. God's in charge because of his character. He's different than us. So here's what happens in Daniel chapter 2. It says in verse 1, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Have you ever had one of those nights where you're just tossing and turning, tossing and turning, tossing and turning? He had some crazy dream. I don't know why he had a crazy dream. I don't know if he had too much NyQuil the night before. I don't know if he ate pizza too late in the night. There's something about eating pizza late before going to bed that gives you crazy. I, I, I don't know why. Well, actually, I do know why he had a crazy dream, because God was getting his attention. Listen to what it says. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep left him. Verse 2, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. So he calls all these wise people, right? He's got all these magicians and sorcerer types, Chaldeans, all, all of these guys. And he brings them in and he says, look, I had this crazy dream. Tell me what it means. Well, all these guys start looking at each other They're like, I, I don't know. What, uh, I'm not sure. Tell us what your dream was, and then we'll tell you what it means. That seems pretty practical to say, hey, first describe us your dream, and then we'll tell you what the dream means. Well, the king's like, how do I know that you're telling the truth? The king's like, if I tell you the dream, then you'll just make something up. And so I'll have no way of verifying if this is the real meaning. So here's what I want you to do. The king says to them, Nebi says to them, he's like, hey, first tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it means. If you tell me what it was, then I'll know that what you're saying is true. If you can tell me without me telling you what it was, if you can describe it to me. And the problem is all these guys look at each other. They're like, there is no way that could happen. All right, none of us could do that. None of us can tell you what your dream was. And so the king says, fine, if you don't tell me what my dream was, and then if you don't tell me what my dream means, then guess what? All of you are going to die. High pressure moment, right? And so the word goes out. Hey, if you don't interpret the king's dream, if you don't tell him what it was and tell him what it means, then all of these magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans, enchanters, then they're all going to die. And so sure enough, the word goes out. And so one of these people that is affected by this is Daniel. And so Daniel receives the word. Hey, the king is getting rid of all of us. And so Daniel just raises his hand. He's like, hey, can I just ask the question? Why is he having all of us killed? And they said, well, because he had a dream and none of us can tell him what that dream was. And Daniel says, hey, would you give me just a moment to pray? And so that, literally that's what Daniel does in Daniel chapter two. He goes back to his, first he sends word to the king, king, give me some time. And then secondly, he goes to his friends and says, hey, let's pray about this. I love that prayer is not a last resort for him. Prayer isn't just an add-on. He's like, of course, I'm going to pray about this. And so here's what it says in Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 20. Daniel answered and he said, this is his prayer to God. Listen to how Daniel prays to God. Blessed be the God, uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. So listen to this. Listen to the weight of these words. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times, he changes seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is inside the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we've asked of you for you've made known to us the king's matter. Why is that a big deal? Well, for Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar at this point thinks that all gods are equal. Nebuchadnezzar, every, every country, every nation that he's conquered, he's found their little statue, their little idol, their re- little representation of their God. And so he's collected all of these false gods, and he's got sort of a closet at his palace of all of these false gods. And so in his mind, all gods are equal. In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, all gods are equal, and really he saw himself as a god because he's the most powerful man on the earth. And when Daniel shows up, Daniel's like, God's not an equal. God's not equal to all these other gods. He's different. Fast forward to the end of chapter 2, verse 46, after Daniel tells him what his dream was, It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. He paid homage to Daniel and he commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, listen to this. Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. And he is the revealer of mysteries. God is in charge, number one, because of his character. He's different. Character is that intangible thing. Character is that thing that goes beyond the surface. It's beyond what you look like. It's beyond what you sound like. It's beyond your external qualities. Character is that internal thing that makes you you. And so for Nebuchadnezzar that thinks he's the most powerful man in the land, for Nebuchadnezzar that thinks the world revolves around him, for Nebuchadnezzar who thinks all gods are equal, Daniel shows up and says, there's a God in heaven. In fact, his dream was that there was this giant image, and this image had a head of gold and a chest of silver and a a belly of bronze and legs that were made of bronze and clay. And in that dream, there's this small stone that came out of nowhere, and it grew and grew and grew, and it took out that image. And so Daniel looks at this king and says, King, that image represents the four empires of this world, and you're the head of gold, and you're powerful, and you're great, but one day your kingdom's going down, and one day the next kingdom's going to go down, and the one that comes after it's going down, and the fourth kingdom's going down, and ultimately there's going to be a kingdom that starts out small, that grows and grows and grows, and it becomes the kingdom that lasts forever, the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar drops on his knees and says, your God's the God of gods. If you're taking notes this morning, when I talk about the character of God, let me just describe how God is different than us. A, the first way, there's a lot of ways, but the first way I want to talk about today that God's different is A, he's not created. He's not created. See, Nebi thought, well, your God is just like every other God, a little statue, a little idol, a little something, but he learns that God's not created. There's never been a time that God didn't exist. There's never going to be a time that God doesn't exist. God has no beginning. God has no ending. Nobody made him God. He's always been. He is uncreated. You and I, were created, right? We, we have a start date. We have an end date on this earth, but God is different, A, because he's not created. B, he's different because he's the original, He's the original. You and I were made in his image. You and I reflect him in how we're made, but God's the original. You and I, we're we're the derivatives, we're the copies, we're the knockoffs. See, God is independent. God is independent. You and I, we're dependent. We need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, right? We need air that we breathe. God doesn't need those things. 
God didn't wake up this morning having a panic. Uh, do I have any clean socks? God, <laughs> God doesn't have those moments. He's independent of that. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need shelter. He doesn't need some building. He's independent of those things. So A, he's not created. B, he's the original. C, he's independent. And then here's the last one. D, he's God. Some of you are like, thank you, Dr. Insight. You got your master's degree to learn that? Yes, I did. He's God. In theology, the word that we use is this word called transcendent. It means he's above everything. He's different. He's not just, sometimes I think in our world, especially here in the West, we have this image of God that he's a little bit bigger than us. He's a little bit taller than us. He's a little bit wiser than us. He's a little bit smarter than us. He's a little bit older, taller. All of the, we just make him in our own image just a little bit more. But when you look at scripture, this lesson that the world doesn't revolve around us, that there's a God and we're not him, we're reminded that God's not a little bit bigger. He's not just a little bit taller. He's not just a little bit stronger. He's God. He's totally different than us. That's how Daniel could look at the most powerful man in the land and say, hey, there's a God and you're not him. Why? Because God is different than you and us. Because he's transcendent, because he's above all that, he was able to become man. The invisible God was able to come in the form of Jesus as a visible man. The untouchable God became tangible. He's different than us. And I think in our age, I think it's always existed, but I think even more so recently, it seems like our generation, our world is into spirituality and into mysticism and into trying to discover truth out of all the world's religions. I mean, one of the things that I hear a lot is that all religions are equal. I hear people describe that a lot. They say, well, we're all trying to get to the same place. We're all trying to get to God or whatever name you want to call him. So it's almost like he's at the top of a mountain and that world religions are just different sides of the same mountain. So you can go up your way, and I can go up my way, and you can go up this way. And, and that's the way they explain it, that all roads lead to the same place, that all roads lead to God. And that sounds cute, and that sounds happy. The problem is it's just not true. It's not true. All religions aren't equal. Can you learn something from another religion? Absolutely. Am I knocking somebody of a different faith? Not at all. But I'm just saying all religions aren't equal. They don't all get you to the same place. In fact, when you look at world religions, they're all about, hey, I want to work my way up to God. I want to earn my way into salvation. I want to make up for my sins. I want to try harder. I want to be better. I want to make restitution, whether that's through a priest or through somebody else or through another name. of G And the problem is in all those world world religions, you're trying to make your way up where in Christianity, God doesn't say, hey, come up here. God comes down to us and does what we can never do and makes it possible for anybody to know him. Only Christianity affects eternity. He's different. Number one, because of his character. He's in charge because of his character. Number two, if you're a note taker, let me just show you where this comes from. Not only is God in charge, number one, because of his character, but number two, he's in charge even when we make bad choices. Even when we blow it, God's still in charge. Even when we make huge, massive mistakes, even when there's areas of our life that we totally have a meltdown, we totally mess up, guess what? God is still in charge. I think sometimes we think, well, that's a great lesson for somebody else, but you don't know what I've done. 
You don't know my mistakes. You don't know my past. You don't, you don't know how I blew it. And man, I just want to show you from Nebuchadnezzar's life, God is in charge, number one, because of his character, but number two, even when we make bad choices. Fast forward to chapter four. If you have your Bibles or if you have the app, fast forward to Daniel chapter four. So this happens about, I don't know, about 20 years later. So Daniel 2, Nebi sort of learns this lesson. He bows down, your God is the God of God, King of kings, revealer of mysteries. But by the time we get to chapter 4, he's forgotten it. He's gotten comfortable. Things are going well. He's conquered more kingdoms. He's got a, a great garden. He's, ple- he's got all of this stuff uh, around him. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, it says in chapter 4, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and I was prospering in my palace. And honestly, that's the downfall. That, when, when life is too comfortable, the tendency is for us to grow numb to this lesson. That's just honest. Right? The better things are going for us. We buy into our own press. We buy into our own ability. And we think, ah, I don't need God. I mean, look at what all I've done. I've gotten this promotion. I've got a bigger house. I got a da da. And you just go down the list of stuff until something shows up to get your attention. Verse four, he's like, I was, I was in my palace. Verse five, listen to this. And I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and visions of my head, they, listen to this, they, alarmed me. So he has another dream. God gets his attention. He's like, Nebi, you forgot the lesson. Nebi, you, you, you think you're in charge again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your attention. So he has a second dream. This time the dream is of a giant tree. That's his dream. He has this dream of this giant tree. It's impressive. It's massive. It spreads out wide so that so many people are under the shade of it. Right? This tree keeps growing and growing and growing. It's massive. All these people, all, all these people benefit from it. And then that tree is chopped down. And so Daniel shows up. The king tells Daniel the dream. Daniel, here's the dream, this giant tree. And then it's chopped down and just a little stump is left. And the moment Daniel hears that dream, it's like the color leaves his face. And there's just silence and awkwardness in the palace. And the king's like, Daniel, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. And listen to what Daniel says. I love this. This shows how much Daniel at least respects this guy, even though he's of a different kingdom. It says in verse 19, Daniel was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king said to him, Belshazzar, which is the name that the king gave him, this Daniel, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And so Daniel responds and says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Daniel's like, I wish this wasn't about you. And then he goes on to tell him why. He says, King, you're the tree. And just like that tree, your kingdom is impressive. And just like that tree, your kingdom provides shade for a lot of people, but the kingdom's not about you. And there's coming a day that, that, that your kingdom's going to be chopped down. You're going to be brought down low. You're, you're, you're going to go from being this great king to being this little stomp until you learn this lesson. Well, what's the lesson, Daniel? What lesson do I need to know? Well, here, here's what Daniel says, verse 24. This is the interpretation of the king. O king, it is a decree that the most high, listen to that, that the most high, which has come upon my lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. That's what it means. You're going to be chopped down. You're going to be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Now, don't click off on me. Don't, don't be like, oh, I, that's figurative. No, this is literal. This literally happened. 
This is something that Daniel says, look, here's the interpretation. You're going to be brought down that you'll be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be at the beast of the field. You shall be made to, listen to this, eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. You're going to be brought down low. You're going to live like an animal for seven years. And then listen to this last part of this verse, verse 25, till you know, till you know what? What's the lesson? What's the lesson? What's the lesson? That the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives them to whom he will. The, king, the world doesn't revolve around you. You may be a king, but you're not the king. You may think your kingdom's impressive, Nebi, but your kingdom is going to be brought down low until you realize and you know that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of men and gives them to whom he will. Look down at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. He's like, king, maybe if you repent, maybe if you stop sinning, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's like, this dream is not great. You're going to be brought down low. Maybe if you turn from your sins, maybe if you start treating others right, maybe if you quit acting like the world revolves around you, maybe God will lengthen your years of prosperity. Daniel's warning him. He's like, watch out, watch out, watch out. Quit living this way. And guess what Nebuchadnezzar does? He ignores it. And God, because he's gracious, doesn't judge him right in that instant. It says God gave him 12 months. God gave him a whole year. God gave him one full year to learn this lesson. And yet, here's what it says in verse 29. At the end of those 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, and the king answered, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar has the nerve to say. After he's learned this lesson in chapter 2, he sort of was reiterated the lesson in chapter 3. He's told the lesson plainly in chapter 4. Listen to the nerve of this guy as he's walking on the roof of the palace. It says in verse 30, he said out loud, is this, is this not the great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see how it's still focused on him? Is this not the great Babylon, which I built with my mighty power as a royal residence for my glory? And in that moment, God brings him down low and literally for seven years lived like an animal. And this is a, this happened. I mean, if you do a little Wikipedia search, you can find out that this has happened even in our own day, where people have had something called boanthropy, where they literally think of themselves as an animal, and they live like an animal, and they, they think like, psychologically, that's what, and this literally happens to Nebuchadnezzar, that even when Nebi still thinks it's about him, even when he makes a terrible mistake, he learns the lesson that God is still in charge even when I make bad choices. I think sometimes we think, well, I'm still going to live like it's about me. And we make bonehead decisions. We, we just go down a path that isn't healthy. And we think, well, well, maybe God's not still in charge. And what we learn is that God doesn't quit being God. God's not up in heaven saying, well, Bobby, I didn't realize you're going to mess up in that way. I can't, I don't. God doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he switches roles. And we've all seen that to some level. I mean, every parent in here today and watching online has switched roles at some point, haven't you? 
mean, haven't you been gone from sweet, caring parent to cut it out? Haven't you done that with your kiddos? Have y'all been to Super Walmart on a Sunday afternoon? Man, I made that mistake like a month ago. I went down here to Beaufort Super Walmart on a Sunday. It was chaotic. I mean, it was chaotic. And let me just say, usually if you're around that toy section, there's a meltdown going on over there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have y'all seen this? I mean, a full-on meltdown. And, and honestly, it's because kids have lost their minds at Walmart. It's like they're around a toy and they act like they've never seen a toy in their life or they act like they've never played. They're like having a full-on meltdown. They're like, please give me this toy. Please give me this toy. I haven't played in days. They're like little crack addicts, basically. They're like, I need a fix. I need another toy. And then usually it's in that moment that the that, that parents move from timeout as a punishment to knockout. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just a meltdown. There's an amen, right? You don't quit being a parent. You're not like, well, I can't be your parent anymore, but you switch roles. You go from being sweet mom to demon name yourself mom. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, as a kid, it always happened. We'd be on our way to church. I've got an older brother, so we'd be in the back seat, and he'd be poking me in my chest and doing this. And then when my mom would say, quit poking your brother, then he would act like he's going to poke me, but not really poke me and get all in my... Y'all's kids do this, right? And he's like, I'm not touching you. I'm not t-. And I'm still having a full-on meltdown. My mom, she's like four foot ten, sweetest lady on the planet, but she swivels around like some exorcist movie or something. She's like, boys, cut it out. And then 30 seconds later, we're at the church, and she's like, hello, brother so-and-so. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord? Right? She didn't quit being mom. She switched roles. And when you look at the Old Testament, if you were to sort of sum up the way that the nation of Israel knew God in the Old Testament, it was, hey, if you obey me, you're going to know me as a God of blessing. I'm going to promote you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you prosper. But the moment you disobey me, I'm going to bring judgment. So all throughout the Old Testament, you sort of see that sort of relationship. Obey me, blessing. Disobey me because I love you. I'm going to judge you so that you turn back to me. In the New Testament, we don't call it judgment. We call it conviction. And so often in our lives, there's that conviction rising up in us. It's, it's like God sees where we've made it about us, where we've made it about our houses, our money, our what, whatever that it, it, that could be different for all of us. And God shows up and taps on our hearts and says, it's not about you. And he goes from being a God of blessing to being a God of conviction. My question is, how do you want to know him? Where have you put yourself first? Where, where has it been about you? Because God's in charge, number one, because of his character. He's different than us. He's in charge, number two, even when we blow it, even when we, learn, we don't listen to his warning. And then finally, number three, God's in charge, even through his compassion. It would be easy to say, well, God, why don't you just write this King Nebuchadnezzar off. Why don't you just say, it's too late, I've warned you, I've given you time after time after time. Chapter two, I gave you a chance. Chapter three, I gave you a chance. Chapter four, I gave you a chance, and you still ignore me. You're done. Yet listen to what it says in verse 34. At the end of the days, at the end of that seven years where he literally was like an animal, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Again, I'm thinking, God, Teach him a lesson. It's too late. I lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. 
I'm a king, I'm not the king. I'm, not, I'm important, but I'm not that important. I've got a lot of stuff going on, but nothing compares to the true king. Listen to what he goes on to say in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor returned to me. Well, how could God do that? How could God say to a king that had made the world around about him, how could God look down and say, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to give you back your reason. The moment that you turn to me, I'm going to allow you to still sit on the throne. How could he do that? He's God. The same way God could look down to us who've made the world about us and we made major mistakes where we think it's about us and yet God is able through his compassion to say, you learned this lesson and I'm not done with you. See, there's some of us in this room that we feel like we've gone too far, we've been gone for too long, we're here physically, but internally we think there is no way and God says, no, 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 no. I am the king that's in charge and I'm able to declare you to be something that you can never be on your own. I'm able to reach into the darkest, most selfish situation and pull out something good. And this evil king gets to see there is a God in heaven that rules. Would you bow your heads this morning? Would you close your eyes? Man, this lesson, again, isn't necessarily one of those pep talks. It's not one of those that's super positive, but man, it is an important lesson for us not just to learn once, but us to be reminded of over and over again. There is a God who sits on the throne, and the question this morning is, how do you want to know him? Some of us have only known him as a God of conviction. We've only known him through our hard-headedness and just that frustration of acting like we're in charge, but we're really not. How do you want to know him? Is there anybody here this morning that would say, maybe there's a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in me. And would you do what he did by the end of chapter four and lift your eyes to the true king? Lift your eyes to the one that sits on the throne forever and ever and ever. This morning, as I pray for us, is there anybody today that would just say, Bobby, pray for me because I need that lesson today. I need to be reminded of who really is on the throne. If that's you and you just be honest and say, Bobby, pray for me. Would you just slip your hand straight up in the air, straight up in the air, just as a way so I know how to pray for us here in the room. Even if you're watching online, if you want to click the button to drop us an email, and we'd love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. Father, all across this room, you see our hands, but you know our hearts. Help us to see you for who you are and help us to see us for where we're at. And as we're praying today, would you just confess to him, what's that thing that you've put in front of him? What's that thing? Maybe for you, it's not you're the king of Babylon, but maybe there's something else that you've lifted and you've elevated it and you've gotten proud about And you just say, God, I I recognize everything that I have is a gift and it's on loan and it's temporary. You're the only one that lasts forever. Just tell him that. 
Everything I have is a gift. It is just temporary. You're the only one that sits on the throne forever. This job that I have is a gift from you. It is temporary. One day I'm going to be held accountable for how I did that job. This parenting gig I have, it is a gift from you. It is temporary. I'm going to be held accountable. Just tell them whatever that is. Maybe for some of us, you just want to pray and say, God, I want you to be the king of my heart. Not just the king of the world, but the king of my heart. Just tell them, dear Jesus, I know, I know I need you. I know my sin separates me from you. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you're alive today. And as best as I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and save me. Be the king of my heart. Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.